Welcome to Metacosm, a new podcast from Metatron Press that features long-form, in-depth conversations with poets and writers. In this series, we dive into writers' psyches and try to understand what draws people to this ancient art form, exploring and defining what impulses and experiences drive their practice. Curated and hosted by Metatron author and editor Brad Casey, Metacosm carves out a sonic space for intimate understandings of what it means in contemporary times to write. Hey, what's up? It's Thursday night. It's getting a little late. I'm going to record this uh, introduction and add it to um, this interview with Faria Roshin that I just finished editing. Um, Faria uh, is a writer who currently lives in Los Angeles. She wrote a poetry book called How to Cure a Ghost, as well as a novel called Like a Bird. And uh, she has a book coming out this year called Who is Wellness For? An Examination of Wellness Culture and Who It Leaves Behind. She also plays a pretty big part in a project called Studio Ananda. Uh, which uh, is described as an organization and a resource for global post-capitalist healing. Uh, a big part of their project is uh, an online community platform uh, where people can go and find wellness tools uh, that have been obfuscated through colonization. Um, so, you know, through the interview, we talk a lot about wellness and healing and, uh, uh, you know... It's a really difficult subject to uh, get into because it often feels like there's a lot of trouble going on in the world. Things are falling apart. I could, you know, name half a dozen things off the top of my head that feel apocalyptic right now. And wellness and healing uh, are things that maybe don't fall into everybody's purview. For whatever reason, um, whether it be because they don't have the time or the interest or they can't access it financially, it's a pretty frustrating topic to talk about, especially when it comes to how accessible it is to everybody. So anyway, we talk a lot about that and uh, and also we talk about writing and how uh, uh, writing can be a form of healing. There's also a fun little part during the interview where uh, Faria does my does some kind of astrological chart for me. I'm going to mention that there's a little cut. You might hear a little cut in it. I cut out uh, part of my birthday. I just don't want people to know how old I am, all right? A little insecure about it. But anyway, um, it's a fun little part. Just give it a listen. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention before it really gets into it is also um, I mentioned a book during the interview called Debt by David Graeber, which is a fantastic book. I'm only about a quarter of the way through it, and um, it's really changing a lot of the way that I view uh, economy. But what I did mention, or sorry, what I meant to mention was a book called Post-Capitalism by Paul Mason which is a book that I actually finished and uh, is fantastic, and I really recommend it. Only mentioning this because that was what I meant to say instead of dead. Anyway, um, 
just a little correction. Also wanted to mention that uh, I'm really grateful to have, uh, I was in contact with a musician uh, who goes by the name Apollo Vermouth. Um, Apollo Vermouth is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and their music's fantastic, and they've lent us their music uh, for this episode. Um, and uh, I wanted to mention also on their website right now, on their Bandcamp, please look up their Bandcamp and listen to their music because it's fantastic. And on their Bandcamp right now, you can buy some new music. All the sales of their new music goes to the COA Youth and Family Centers. Um, which help Milwaukee children, teens, and family uh, reach their greatest potential through a continuum of educational, recreational, and social work programs offered through its urban community centers and rural camp facility. Um, Last thing I wanted to mention very quickly, uh, because I forgot to mention it during the last episode, um, but we're very grateful to a friend of ours named Trevor Turple who helped us with a lot of the audio um, some audio issues that we've had in making this podcast in general. So every podcast that you're listening to has a little bit of engineering from our dear friend Trevor Trevor Turple. Uh, we love him. We wanted to give him some credit. Uh, so anyway, um, I guess the last thing I wanted to mention was... Uh, uh, last thing I wanted to mention was just that, uh, you know, I was really grateful to talk to Faria. We met um, a few months ago. I was in Los Angeles and we did a reading together and we connected pretty briefly. She's very funny and very warm and I wanted to uh, have a conversation while I was down there, but it didn't really work out because she was deep in the process of writing her new book and I only had a limited amount of time, so we had to reschedule uh, a little bit, and we ended up talking just before Christmas, uh, twenty twenty one. It's like maybe a week and a half before Christmas. So this is so we talked through a Zoom call. Um, but anyway, uh, I won't keep you any longer. Here's my interview with Arya Roshin.
Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I'm tired. I um, I worked last night till late. I work in a bar here, and we had a Christmas party uh, for the pizza place across the street. And I was there till about four in the morning. Wow. Yeah. And Which I've been bar? Uh, NDQ. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you, you spent time in Montreal, didn't you? I lived there for almost four years. Right. Yeah. What, what were you doing here? Um, I couldn't afford to live in New York anymore, right. so it was, um, it was sort of an in-between space where I was waiting to get my visa back to the state. So I was raised in Australia. I'm Canadian by birth, mm-hmm. but I was raised in Australia. And then at 19, I moved to New York and then I was there for a couple of years and came to Montreal when I was 23, just sort of like after a relationship, kind of just being like, okay, this is where I'm going to be. I was going to go to Vipassana for 10 days. Mm. I'm really glad I didn't go and decided to stay in Montreal and then was there mm-hmm. until 2017. Okay. Um, actually, we're transitioning pretty well into my first question, <laughs> uh, because I know that you grew up in Sydney and you spent time in Montreal and New York and you're in LA now. Um, I'm wondering, do any, do you call home? Do you call any of those cities home? Like, where would you call home right now? I call Sydney home. Yeah. Yeah. I feel very Australian weirdly enough it's like the only nationalism i ever show because nationalism sucks but like Mm -hmm. i think it feels really (laughs) like juxtaposed against my identity probably it's like such a shocking reality for most people they're like you're australian if they don't know who i am or anything about me they're it's like i obviously don't sound australian so like Mm -hmm. it's it's like something that i feel as i've gotten older as well um and my own identity has become more clarified in my own mind. I just see my Australianness so much more, like, like my style, my taste, like everything's like so informed by my Australian identity. So that's really funny and, and weird and a quirk of mine. Hmm. What does that what does that mean being Australian to you? <laughs> okay, what does it mean? I think, you know. So I have this ongoing idea for an essay that I want to write, which is about Tame Impala sounding what Australia sounds sounds like. Mm. And it's it's they've been able to, I think, somehow mainline straight into the source of the earth in Australia. Like I see it as a as this like weird planetary dimension where like in the middle of Australia, you have Eretz Rock, Uluru, and it's a giant ceremonial ground for the indigenous people there. Mm. And it's in this like giant d- desert. So like half, like almost, I guess, like all of Australia, like the middle part of it is desert. And it's largely uninhabitable by non-indigenous folks. Um, and then that to me is sort of a really beautiful symbol for what Australia stands for, which is 
just like this very intense kinetic energy and connection to the land that then trickles into every facet of being. So like, you know, we have, I think the high, one of the highest standards of living in the world. And you can sense that in the food that you taste in the coffee that you drink and the wine that you drink in the, in the, in the, uh, parks that you walk in the the oceans that you see like everything is so tactile and connected to the earth in a way that is very non-existent in North America and I think the severing of an indigeneity in both continents is, is different even though they're equally as violent like that in Australia is sort of it's just different I guess because of the landscape and that identity has like really shifted whether white Australia wants to acknowledge it or not. It's really shifted the entire ethos of the Australian identity. So there's like such an emphasis on like nature and and being connected to nature. And to me, that was like really, really evident um, growing up as a child and, and thinking about the, the, the trees in the reservoir behind my mother's, backyard and like all of the places that I would go and nest in in nature because I didn't have a good home life so Mm -hmm. I I think I just didn't really understand those parts of me and I think the older I've gotten the more I've just been like wow this is like I'm so grateful to come from a country that really has done a lot to protect its flora and fauna Mm -hmm. and that really has shifted my relationship to the earth and thus myself. Right. Yeah. I went to the, when I was in LA a few years ago, I went to the Huntington gardens. Have you ever been there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. Yeah. I remember the Australian garden was just so sparse, but also every plant that was in it was huge, humongous <laughs> plants I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was going to say that like, they they implanted a lot of Australian wildlife into Los Angeles, into oh, yeah? the yeah into the um, urban development because they wanted LA to look more like Sydney. Okay, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so like the eucalyptus trees and stuff, they're all I believe all from Australia. They're Crazy. all yeah, and that's why the the, the Earth doesn't like it. It's <laughs> like because it's like literally it's like a different. It's like where you come from, like it's. You know, so yeah, it's it's quite interesting to see like walking around, just feel like, wow, I'm I'm in Sydney right now. Yeah. Yeah. How's it been feeling being down there? I, you know, I was in New York on and off. Like it was New York four years, Montreal almost four years, and then New York four years again. And mm-hmm. so like, yeah, a long, a very huge chunk of my life. I'm turning 32 soon. And huge chunk of my life has been formed in a city that's built on scarcity and a city and a nation that is just warmongering. Um, and I, 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 I don't know, like it's after last year, I was really wondering geographically, like where I feel safe and where what I want out of my political action and I think that with the liberation 
with the fight for liberation of black folks across the world, it was like this beautiful moment where like all of us had a little more clarification over how we wanted to exist and like being in a pandemic, it's like all of those things become a lot more, I think, you know, apparent, I guess. And so I, yeah, I was just thinking long and hard and, and New York just didn't feel right. And I think the more I get into like ecological work as well, cause like that's kind of where my next book is going. And, and, um, it's, I, I just feel actually like I'm sort of turning into an ecological writer in a lot of ways and, um, wanting to like speak about the Anthropocene and wanting to speak about our time in a way that really factors in, uh, like apocalypse, mm-hmm. the climate apocalypse. And so, um, yeah, just like, where does my, where do it, where do I feel aligned to live? You know, it's like, we live on unceded land and like the more I think about land back and the more I think about just like, what does it mean? What does allyship even mean? And uh, a couple of years ago, I was actually on a panel with um, an Australian Aboriginal poet named Lorna Munro. And she said, all allyship on stolen land, all allyship is performance on stolen land. And I was just like, holy shit, that's so deep. <laughs> and like, it's really humbling actually to be like, wow, there's like so much work to do. I think I get really excited about like work for, for the world because I'm naturally very like oriented that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's extremely powerful to live in a time that feels like it's collapsing. Like everything around us is, is collapsing because like, to think about the t- tower card and tarot, for example, it's like that card's actually a really good card. Like, you know, it's scary because it means everything has to fall apart, but then that leaves so much room for the expansion of like the utopia that we don't believe is possible. But could it be like, mm-hmm. I really like to think about that sort of like framing and reframing what it means to be. Uh, you know, alive right now, but also thinking about the future. And I, 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 I think all of that kind of comes back to your question about Los Angeles. And I feel like LA just feels like a really good landing spot for me to dream and philosophize right now. So Mm -hmm. I'm happy. So you feel like we're living in tower card times right now? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like, Yeah. I mean, every astrologer will tell you that, but also like I was thinking recently a lot about how the United States is a Scorpio Hmm. and like, just like scorpionically, like how, like in that framework, like what, like just thinking about the ways in which astrologically a Scorpio needs to heal so much of it is about ego. And I'm like this, this country needs to understand its humility. It's like, it needs to understand that like this, this vision that it has of itself is a lie. It's just, it's just a, it's just a projection of a, of a mythology and all nations are mythologies, but you know, like you look at a country like Costa Rica now that's completely disbanded its military. It's like, there are possibilities that we just have not seen because we've been so engrossed and consumed by capital that we believe that like a good life can be attained through theft 
it mm-hmm. can be attained through like just you know yeah like having more money when in fact like we're showing ourselves as a species that we long for so much more than just money like there's this huge gap in our psyche because we don't have connection with one another and we don't have connection to ourselves and we thus don't have any connection to the land and all of those things are fucking connected and so it is collapsing times because it's like you know I don't and I don't see it as a way it's like collapsing it's despair it's collapsing and like we should be applauding and pushing every structure we possibly can because this pandemic is going to go on for a while and there's going to be a lot of lessons that we need to learn from it. And that if anything that, you know, we can turn to as proof is history itself. So like, yeah. Yeah. It was like through the pandemic, uh, I was reading a lot about economy, which is like, you know, a topic that I've never really been able to grapple or been interested in even. I remember when when cryptocurrency started, I couldn't understand what it was, but then I remembered that I don't even understand what money is. Exactly. And so anyway, um, I started reading up, I think it, like I started Debt by David Graeber. I haven't finished mm-hmm. it yet, but you know. Talking, Big ass book. Yeah. Uh, but like talking about like the things that are valued and the things that are valued within capitalism and the things that are considered labor and how some things aren't considered labor, even though they are mm-hmm. uh, uh, people working and it is people using their labor to create things, but it's not valued monetarily. Um, and how that like applies to the way that we live our lives and how we interact with people and what we consider valuable in another person. And just, yeah, it's been a lot of questioning of that uh, in the last couple of years for me anyway. I, I also just want to say like, yeah, yeah. yeah to, to your point, like mm. I, I think those questions are necessary. Like we have to understand that like where, when it comes to sort of spirituality, for example, you know, everybody wants to be a naysayer and say, well, you don't know, you got, you can't see God and you can't prove God. And yet there's the same thing with capitalism, the same thing with money. It's the same ways in which we engage in within invisible systems all the time, like white supremacy. It's like these things have been ordained by some people. And then we just expect that this is normal. This is, this is the way it always was when in fact, these, these things and these structures are so new. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just think that it is unfortunate that we always live in absolutes. Like we don't understand that we can be anything we want to be as a people. And yet our imagination is so lacking that we rely on systems of scarcity like money and capitalism. Okay, here's a question maybe in line with all this stuff. You're working on uh, um, Studio uh, Ananda? 
Yeah, Ananda. Yeah. Ananda. How did that come about? Um. And, so, and also, uh, and also, tell me what it is. Just okay. I've been looking into it, but for the sake of like listeners. Okay, so Studio Ananda is a plus many different things. It is a um, right now an archive of um, conversations about wellness that are not easily accessible. Hmm. So it was born out of um, my own experience. I mean, I co-founded it with my friend Trinita Tevaraja, but she, so we kind of came at it at different points, but for the longest time, even when I was living in Montreal, it's actually where it kind of started. Um, like in my early, early twenties, I realized that I was sick, but I didn't have the words for it. I was like, okay, I have to take like really extra care of my body. I was sort of in a, um, a space with myself where I was beginning to articulate the kind of violence that I experienced in my home life. But still so much of it was like either coded or things that I didn't really even want to look at. I was still in relationship with my family, very much trying to heal with them and felt, um, I think a lot of shame for leaving. Um, I left when I was 19. So which is just like, was a huge thing in my family. And mm. I very much like escaped. Um, but I didn't tell anyone that I really, for most of my twenties really pretended that I was put together. I'm a Capricorn son. I don't want to ask for help. I'm not somebody who really thinks I need it in all honesty. And so I didn't understand that like life isn't just a performance of what you think it is. And, and like, I really think I felt as if like, if I just believed that I was okay, I was going to be okay. And then I really wasn't, but it, it took me a long time to even know that. So like the closest thing I got to it was like understanding it in, like 21 that I needed like a lot of like alternative therapy. Hmm. And so I started first with kinesiology and um, a kinesiologist, for those of you who don't know, is sort of a chiropractor that also works with energy and understands um, that your, your body essentially reflects and stores so much of this unknown knowledge and perhaps like a severed communication. Um, so you, you like intellectually might not understand, but your body has the answer. And so, um, like there's this thing called muscle testing. So like, you know, the kinesiologist would like, you know, I would go in to ask, to talk about something that I've been working on or something that I've been feeling like, you know, I think one of the first things I ever said to him was, um, I don't understand why I was put into this family. And that was like, I think one of the first things we worked on, like, I felt very like the black sheep. And always felt like I carried so much darkness, but my outwardness was extremely happy. Like I, I was, I was like always, I think quite a joyous person to be around. I'm generally like in a, in a good, like, I think I'm a very kind person. And so that was very much like the, the, I guess the dissonance with myself because internally I felt so disgusting 
and mm-hmm. ugly and awful and um, like a bad person, like all the time. And just like, just had, yeah, I think just a lot of deep hatred. And it took me years and years to figure out what that was. And I did it through like first kinesiology and then um, so you tell the kinesiologist that and they're like, they do muscle tests and they're like, what happened to you when you were eight? Cause they can understand that they, they, there's something about eight that your body's carrying. So it's like weird shit like that, that is so powerful. And I continue just investing. So every check I would make on my poultry fucking salary as a writer, I would go and get acupuncture. I would go and get massage, a massage. I would go and um, get cupping and washa. And um, later on, I started doing trauma therapy. And, and, you know, now I do all sorts of things. But like, I started to just like build this little regime for myself, you know, like, I, this is my astrologer. That's my tarot reader. I, I built kind of this infrastructure and ecosystem around me in my, in my mid twenties in Montreal, that's where I really learned how to do it. And it's because I understood that I needed to focus on my healing to see what needed to come out. I didn't have that consciousness, but I, I now know that that's what I was doing. And that really became, I think, the framework for Studio Ananda because I realized how many people deserve to have this information accessible and how many people don't even know where to start to look after themselves, to start to begin to build that communication with themselves. Like a lot of emails or messages I get with people from people or folks, you know, like telling me I'm so brave for like the things that I've achieved. But I think really what I've done is just, I've been consistent. I realized very young, identified that there was an issue. And then it took me like, yeah, 10, 11 years to really start seeing any real, like true shift. Mm -hmm. So it's like such, such a journey, but Studio Anand is really about like, allowing that information, especially because so much of these um, modalities come from Eastern philosophy. They come from the East, they come from India primarily, um, that there's no context for like yoga. There's no context for meditation. There's no context for reishi mushrooms, for ashwagandha, for Ayurveda that, you know, we're just like, these are words that are something in Sanskrit, but like there's nothing beyond that. And it's on this like both an archive of conversation, but an archive of information for people to begin to teach themselves um, more about the world and thus themselves. Um, but on top of that, Sudhyana is also a social art practice that is um, really hat tipping Suzanne Lacey, who's an incredible um, social art, social practice artist. And, you know, to me, what that means is like, we're making art and work. Like there's a a real merge of like healing and art and thinking about social commentary and what 
it means to make art that's explicitly about that. And so, yeah, we're kind of expanding in many different ways. Like my ultimate dream is to build schools for, for people to learn these magic, this magic that, you know, to, to learn about healing. It's kind of my goal. Um, I wanted to jump on something that you sort of passed over as you were talking about that. You said that you were spending your very paltry salary as a writer on healing. And I want mm-hmm. to talk to you about uh, how you feel about the commodification of healing. Oh, I fucking hate it. I think that it's just so toxic. I mean, just to go back to what you said about capitalism, like in order to really remove our tendrils from capitalism, we have to explicitly not exploit other people. And I think that unfortunately, when there is no context and there's only an emphasis on gross capital that then goes into the pockets of very few people who are relying on the the laborers of Indian farmers who literally were protesting for a year and a half against like very, very malicious laws against them by the Indian government, they have to understand that they're not just exploiting the farmers, they're exploiting the entire nation, state of India. And then that goes back to like imperial forces and the fact that the colonial project hasn't ended that, you know, I think that I don't know the exact numbers, but like Samir Amin, who's an Egyptian um, economist, um, talks about this a lot about drain theory and this, like, I think from the 19, from 1960, colonizers have drained, or like really the West has drained about, I think, like a hundred trillion dollars from the global South. So like, this is from 1960. We think about imperialism and we're like, it didn't happen. But like the ways in which these predatory laws still, or the predatory ways in which, you know, these countries West, the West engages with the South and the way that like governing bodies like the World Trade, Trade Organization, even the United Nations in many ways, like these government, these governing or regulatory bodies only serve the interests of the West. And so they don't protect Indian farmers. They don't fucking care about India. They understand that exploitation is the name of the game. And that's why, you know, we have all of these nations, you know, pointing fingers at China for climate and they're not taking accountability for the fact that they are putting the demand on China to make the products that make the greenhouse emissions. You know, like that's why China's China has higher greenhouse emissions. So there's no like awareness or accountability and that extraction continues because it's like the West wants what it wants without ever considering who gets impacted by that. And who are the laborers? Who are the people working in the factories? Like this is not being taken into consideration in a mass way. And I think that always comes back to like, you know, like it always comes back to exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and also within that, um, just to sort of bring the conversation uh, like closer to the ground a little bit, um, what I think 
is really interesting about uh, Studio Ananda is that it is like free information for whoever needs it and uh, like, you know, the commodification of wellness. Um, not everybody can afford to go to yoga or yeah. can afford to take the time to go to yoga or to, uh, you know, get massage or do any of these things. It's, I find it's really difficult to, uh, uh, to, I guess, communicate how important it is to focus on yourself when someone is so within the system that they need to work and work and work just to survive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I think it's sorry, not just yeah. a matter of money. It's also a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when we're, when we're envisioning utopia, you know, cause I, so I'm in um, the degrowth chapter of New York and degrowth is a movement of degrowing from capitalism. Mm-hmm. And um, I, so I, I think about this a lot. My next book, Who is Wellness For, thinks about um, sort of contending with a lot of these questions. And I think the sad reality of, of the sort of binary of capitalism versus socialism, for example, is like there's this like socialist rhetoric of like, which doesn't take account pleasure or care or the, the need for slowness. Like the, the, that, that those are actually like, human rights like that everybody deserves them and like i think reorienting away again from just like it's not that like caring for yourself is um like an extra thing that you do it's that everybody deserves to be like this everybody deserves to get a massage everybody deserves to get acupuncture how can we envision societies that allow that for everyone mm-hmm. and i think that's where we're at where it's like you know something that has really been profound for me is I have a chronic illness. So I, I don't actually care about whether or not like anybody thinks that I need to do these things. It's, it's accepting the, the fragility of my own body. And I think we live the the unfortunate reality of capitalism is that it makes you believe that you can be a machine, that you should be able to do everything all the time, that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're tired, like you can sort of move beyond that. And I really want to start believing in a a practice of care for everyone and a practice of slowness and gentleness. And I understand that that's revolutionary. It's, It's powerful to be like, actually, everybody deserves this kind of softness. It's not just for some, it's not just for the wealthy. It's not just for the people who have the time or the money. It's for everyone who wants to have this access and it should just be for everyone, period. transition a bit into talking about your writing um uh is writing a form of healing for you yeah it's it's been the biggest thing that has healed me in my life how so um when i didn't have uh when i didn't have somebody 
I had writing, I had the page. I started writing like a bird, my novel out of a deep sense of loneliness and a deep sense of like existential discomfort Hmm. and loneliness and sadness within the existentialism. And I was like very, very, um, trigger warning, suicidal. Should I trigger warn people? It's up to you. Okay. Suicidal from, from, from a very young age, I think I I first showed any signs of depression, suicidal ideation when I was around 10. So I was already like, again, like this really happy, outwardly happy kid, but inward, just very conflicted. And so I started writing like a bird when I was 12 and I didn't know what I was writing. I didn't know why I felt so alive when I was writing, but I did. And I finished the book when I was 15. It's nowhere what it was, what it is now. It was not very good. I remember, but I, I wrote a book and I, I felt purposeful and I always knew, I didn't think that I was going to be a writer back then. It wasn't something that I like dreamt of forever. It was actually something that I think I just did for like a very, like almost like a, it, it was the only thing that I could do. It was, it was a necessity and that's why I did it, but I didn't do it out of like, I did it out of urgency as opposed to like passion for the craft. Although I read a lot and maybe that's why. I felt like writing could be something that I could pursue even in my own private life. Um, And I had a very like intense imagination. I was very in the dream world. I'm still that person, like just really immersed in between worlds all the time. And so it felt like a really good place where I could be safe. I think that's it. I felt very safe on the page Hmm. and that I could just really be myself where I couldn't be myself anywhere else. Like even in school, I knew that I was intellectual, but I wasn't like always a bright student. I wasn't like killing every class. So I think I just felt very disjointed wherever I went. And no matter what the page would understand me because Mm -hmm. I could, I could transmute all of these things onto, into there and into the, into the language, into the, all the feeling that I, I felt was so inexplicable to others. I could, yeah, find friendship and camaraderie mm-hmm. in the book. And, um, yeah, it really healed me. I yeah. found immense healing through my work. And like writing. everything you're saying right now, is just, I can't help but connect to you so hard. Like, mm. When I was uh, a teenager, you know, also suicidal, depressed, uh, like bullied at school and Mm. writing, writing was the only place where I felt like I could express myself and I wasn't judged. Mm -hmm. And so it just became an habitual habit through, through that process, you know? What's your sign again? Uh, Aquarius. Aquarius. Do you know all your, all of your stuff? Damn, I wish I could re- Can you pull I it up? It off. Uh, should we pull it up? 
Yeah. <laughs> it should be a part of the podcast. Um, I, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, but I also really relate. And I think like queer kids, I think kids that are just like offbeat, like an Aquarian, you know, like it's, it's hard to be contained. You don't want to be contained. You want to be, you want the license to be free Mm -hmm. and think beyond the parameters of like this extremely boring mortal coil. And this like very, you know, like just, I don't know, like, again, I go back to imagination a lot because like this was conceived, right? Mm -hmm. Like the world we live in was conceived and we all play by the rules of this conception. And that's why like when people are like, this is the matrix, like, I'm like, yeah, it kind of is like, you know, and that's the power of writing, you know, like it really, you really can say so much through fucking metaphor and parables. And it's, I mean, that's why sci-fi is so powerful. It's like, yeah, people learn how to say what they can't say otherwise into, into, into the words anyway so did you pull it up oh you want me to pull it up i don't know how to yeah do okay okay me. sorry okay, no i can do it i pull can it. pull it up <laughs> <laughs> um i'm february 8th born around 7 p.m yes i <laughs> i asked my mom what time i was born and she said she couldn't remember but she remembers that my my grandmother went home for supper and when she got back, I was born. So it was around more around six, seven. They have they have dinner early there. <laughs> seven p.m. Okay, let me just do this. I'm finally seven. Um, what February? February eighth. Yes. And where? Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, it's Mayor Machine, New Brunswick, spelled what? M- <laughs> spelled M M I R. M I R A M I I. Sorry, M A R. M I R. M I R. A M. A M. I C H I. I A. No, sorry, I C H I. I C H. And that's in New Canada. That's beautiful. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a Micmac word. I think it means the Great River. Amazing. I was w- wondering if it was a Micmac word. Okay. Um, if it doesn't come up, it used to have a different name, and I can I can name that out for you. No, it did come up. Okay. So apparently you're a Taurus moon, which is interesting. Is, okay. Do you want me to give you a little bit of a reading? Yeah, what's up? Let's hear it. Okay. Okay. So, um, okay. Even though you are an Aquarius, you're actually really an earth sign, um, which is a plot twist. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure if you were expecting you. So you have the Aquarian, like, you know, sun nature of, um, you know, it's very, it's quite detached. It's, quite cerebral it's very globally oriented but your Aquarius is in your fourth house so you're actually quite Cancerian that's the Cancerian it's run um ruled by cancer for the fourth house and so you know you probably actually really like want home or like home is quite important to you and this idea 
of stability is quite important to you, especially because you have a Taurus moon. And to you, even though like you don't really see home as sort of like this one thing, you probably like have an idea of like multiple homes or like you want multiple homes. Like I think that there might be a part of you that's like that wants to roam and wants to be sort of in multiple places, but you always want to return back to that sense of home and feeling stable in yourself. Yeah. That just goes right back to my first question. Cause like, that's something I'm curious about with myself. It's just, where do you call home? Oh, wow. Okay. I see you moving around a lot and I'm like, you know, yeah. what's home? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what's home to you? Like, I think that that's probably like a very, not existential, but maybe like an existential part of you um, that like, yeah, like longs for something that maybe you're even unsure if you can, if you can ever fully attain. Like, I see a lot of like desire for stability, but then a lot of like anxiety. Um, Like, I feel like you actually have a lot of anxiousness no your... <laughs> <laughs> no in fact the opposite i have almost no anxiety are you being serious yeah really yeah yeah, yeah. no i, oh my I God. for a long time i couldn't relate to people who had heavy anxiety i would just be like i don't understand why you're acting this way and then oh. it took like having a very close relationship with someone who dealt with um, uh, very extreme anxiety before I started to understand it a little bit better. Hmm. Okay. So you wouldn't, okay. No, I feel that. Well, then you don't, then that doesn't resonate, but I mean, why I said that is because you have a Virgo rising. And so I always read Virgos as quite anxious, Mm. but maybe for you, it's more like there's a particularity to you and there's a particularity of like how you want everything to be. So it was like sort of like an almost like, yeah, just like a Virgo rising is very much like this has to be this all the time. They're very like, they like to categorize things. They like to put things on into lists. Like you want like probably quite a clean home or um, yeah, you want things to be your way in order to like compute life. Does that resonate? Uh, A little bit. Not okay. Entirely, you Not know, hitting the mark. Sometimes I'll walk into somebody's place and they're like in their thirties and their place is just a mess. And I'm like, how do you live this way? I don't really understand it. I do like a tidy home. I like a cozy home. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but do you think that your maybe it's better to ask you questions now? Then do you think your do you think your um do you think you're very ambitious? Um, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, are you sure? It depends on the context of ambition. I'm ambitious. Not in a traditional sense, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm ambitious in that I always need to be doing something. I have trouble relaxing and I do like, mm-hmm. you know, cultivating a nice life because I feel like I owe it to myself for, mm-hmm for fucking getting this far you know yeah totally um yeah like you like pleasure i like pleasure yes because moon and what's your what's your relationship to pleasure (laughs) 
my relationship to pleasure okay I like pleasure a lot I I love I really relate to you in terms of wanting a good life I have worked really hard to get a good life I, I wasn't raised with money and resources and access so I have like invested in a beautiful home life but pleasure like do you mean sexual pleasure or do you mean like erotic pleasure no just however you interpret it well I was gonna say for you just quickly for Mm. your Taurus moon and your Mars in Scorpio you are somebody that might be very pleasure seeking Mm. and that can be um yeah, that's just like a part of you. Mm-hmm. And I, I I wonder if you or you know feel safe with that. That's that's yeah. something that <laughs> that I feel like I probably I'm celibate right now. Okay. And I've been celibate for a while. And it's something that I never thought I would ever do for this long. Mm. And it's because I realized I was a child sexual abuse survivor a couple of years ago. And like, after that point, I just couldn't have sex anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really cool. It's I'm realizing how much of the hardship that I've been through in the last couple of years of like really facing these really dark parts of my life. I've actually begun to like have a better understanding and awareness of my own needs because I'm actually naming what I am and what I see and and what I've experienced. And, um, you know, like I think in the culture that we live in, which is very sex positive, but not in a way that I think is actually holistically sex positive. It's very like aesthetically sex positive. Mm -hmm. Um, there's not a lot of spaciousness around, like, I think just even like the power of eroticism or the power of, um, like what my people invented, like Tantra and the the idea of Tantric relationship. And so I think even though I've been not exploring sexually the dimensions of self, I've erotically been experiencing a lot and, you know, like sublimating sexual energy and realizing that it's like, it's just like creative energy. And it's, it's really about like, moving with that energy and being able to um put it in different parts of yourself or like allow it to alchemically shift in different ways like that's been I feel like how I've been exploring pleasure Mm -hmm. and sex and but like in my own in my own within my own peripheries Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah that makes sense Maybe I just don't know how to phrase this question. Mm-hmm. Do you do you feel that by uh, writing about your trauma, do you th- feel like you're helping other people give voice to their own traumas? Absolutely, I think that that's one hundred. I mean, I have so much 
proof of that, I guess, just through like, you know, readings and people contacting me. Like it's, it's incredibly humbling to, to experience. Like, I think the byproduct of me just telling my truth, like I started writing because I wasn't being heard and because I didn't have any articulation of how I could talk about my own trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it, it became a dream that became a story that then I exercised. It's fucking crazy that this is documented. And then as a result, I continued to write because I was like, Oh, okay. Like I, I'm actually, I'm actually going somewhere. I'm getting, I'm getting somewhere. I, I think my astrology has really made me realize that my work is exactly this. It's like really healing myself and the byproduct is healing other people. But the moment I think about the audience, the moment I think about validation, the moment I think about anything beyond why I did this, like the pure sort of really honest reason of why I started writing, it gets too convoluted, you know, or like money comes into the picture. And I, I, I struggle a lot with worth and so much of my abuse was about really sort of ingraining a sense of worthlessness inside of me that I've had to really, really heal and unlearn. And it's such a journey, but like in therapy, you know, I've, I, I've been able to identify like how absurd it is that I chose a vocation that literally like literally triggers like every part of my abuse because like yeah so much of it is about validation and and um like being sort of told I'm not good enough and Mm -hmm. I think the liberation for me in this in my work is like believing and trusting and knowing that no matter who reads me and I don't mean to dismiss or or just or you know, be cavalier about the fact that like, I have such generous readers who read me and I'm so immensely grateful for that. But that is not the reason I write. I don't write for that. I've never wrote for, for that because I, you can't guarantee that shit. Like you, you can only guarantee the truth of your word. You can only guarantee the work, you know, and like the value of the work is, is the value of what you put into it. And so you know, this is hard work that I've been doing and that I continue to do. And it's because I don't have a choice. So I just have to keep doing it. And what are you, what are you writing right now? Okay. So I just finished who was wellness for last week. It is, we're just finishing the end notes right now and it goes into print very soon. And I think immediately. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's coming out next July. And then I have a second book of poetry called Survival Takes a Wild Imagination mm. that I think might be coming out 2023. I'm not sure yet, but um, those are the two things that I'm working on that are coming out soonish. And then, yeah, I've just got my newsletter that I do, which is so much fun. And it's just this space where I get to be like the very strange person that I am. And I can just be free and and not posture and not write in like the language of some weird editorial voice that I don't even like, you know, like I, it sucks that commercial writing has become 
a place of such <laughs> lacking imagination as well. And like, I, you know, like to me, I want a person, I think in a review was like, like a bird is unlike any novel that you've ever read. Like a lot of people pointed out that it was just not like the form of a novel. And like, I didn't go to school for writing. So I was like, I literally don't care. And I don't, because I think that those are ways that you gatekeep. And there's this weird hierarchical nature to writing and the world of writing, and especially like professional writing that I just don't prescribe to. I don't think it's interesting to be so regimented and like put into such tight boxes where nobody is allowed to express themselves and be, you know, um, innovators and, and, and think beyond the concept of what writing is now. And to me, I always am trying to get to this place of like, in like, I don't know, eighth century Baghdad at the house of Baghdad, which was this place of where like all of the, all of these things were getting translated. Like you would just go and you, and just translate a book that you had found like in another language. And it just became a phenomenal library of resource. And I think about the Muslims back then that were doing this work, they were thinking about like the expansion of the mind philosophy. Like they were like translating Greek, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates into Arabic. And that's why we know these works because they were, they were literally archived. And so to me, that's the place I want to go back to. I want to go back to the sense of wonder and excitement about language and about writing that doesn't just, you know, put it into this space of like, this is what writing is and like have it be in a particular style or just like the ways that we confine and contain art. I'm very uninterested in that. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. I want to make spaces where we can push beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, one last question. This one comes from Ashley. Hmm. Um, Ashley wanted to know, what are your dreams and visions for the future? Hmm. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> what are my dreams for the future in what sense? In any sense? I don't know. It's from her. I guess just in any sense, yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, that's such a big question. Let's start off with uh, just yourself and then go out into the general. I think, okay, thank you. Yeah, that guy is good. My dreams for myself to continue to heal, to continue to, um, and what I mean by that, because that's a very vague statement is, you know, in the last year, I've been able to really look at myself and see the cracks and really face the cracks and and instead of demonizing myself or being hard on myself I'm actually finding a way to have compassion for my mess and have compassion for the things that I've always hated or, or you know just judged and critiqued about myself believing that you know perfection is the goal but I think really the goal these days has become has been to become more whole. I really want to find a sense of 
holisticism in my body and my life. And I really want that for the world too. I really want us to, I see a future where we move back to the land where we start to create that communication with the land again. And, and we understand how immense and beautiful the work is to heal the land so we can heal ourselves. And that, you know, whenever we start to get overwhelmed by this experience, just have to, we just have to remind ourselves that this is why we're here. We're here to heal. I, I, I don't have any other reason for um, being alive. Like what, why are we here to perpetuate the shitty standards that our parents had or, you know, that, that society has, like, that's not, that's not what I want for my life. I want to understand and believe that I can live in the world that I want. And that's the world I'm fighting for. Mm -hmm. Great.